I'm preaching on the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. What stands out with all of these is that Jesus is talking about internal qualities. The people were used to the Pharisees' teaching. It was all about the externals. Keep this rule. Don't do that. Do this. And as long as you kept the rules, you were righteous in the Pharisees' eyes. That is why Jesus flips it upside down. Instead of concentrating on the external, on whether you towed the line, whether you looked the part, much of Jesus' teaching concentrates on the attitudes and thoughts of a person. But while they are internal qualities, they affect the external. Jesus knew that to really change how you act, you need to change your heart, not just follow a list of rules. For the people that Jesus was teaching, this was a radical departure. The rules of the Pharisees could most likely be kept if you could sort them all out. They had like hundreds of rules. But if you could sort them out, they could be kept. I mean, the Pharisees certainly thought they kept them. But Jesus was teaching a different way of living. He was challenging those who followed him to a different way to a different type, to actually be a different person, not just follow the rules and stay the same person inside, but change how you were inside, living as the person God had created you to be. And that could only be done in a living, dependent relationship with God. We're going to be looking at all eight Beatitudes today. So we're not going to be able to do an in-depth study of each one of them. But it's important that we look at them all together because they describe what followers of Jesus should be like. All of these qualities should be present in the life of a believer. It's not just pick the ones you like best and concentrate on them and forget about the others. All of them should be present in our lives. We should be people who possess and show all of these nor is the order of the Beatitudes random. Jesus didn't just throw out them as they came into his mind. Each one builds on the ones before it. Each of the Beatitudes starts with the word blessed, meaning God's favour, God's approval. So let's start with Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This beatitude is one that is often misquoted. I'm sure you've probably heard someone say when someone's been in a bit of a difficult situation, oh, but remember, if you're poor, you're especially blessed by God. The idea that somehow it's good to be financially poor. And it can be used to almost glorify or justify poverty. Whereas as Christians, we should be helping people in those situations. The poor in spirit are those who consciously put their total dependence on God, not on themselves. They know that in themselves they cannot please God. People who are poor in spirit have been humbled by God. By God's grace, they've experienced God's grace and it's humbled them. They've realised their sinfulness and know that only God can save them. They know that they have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Romans 3.23 says. It is the attitude that is seen in the parable of 
the tax collector and the Pharisee that Jesus told. The Pharisee, when he prays, he talks about all the good things he's done, how good he is. The tax collector knew his real state. When he calls out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus finished the parable by saying in Luke 18, 14, I tell you that this man, that's the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those who are poor in spirit know that the kingdom of heaven is theirs because their confidence is in God, not in themselves. They hope and trust in God and his promises. They experience his forgiveness and mercy and are living in his promise of eternal life. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It seems counterintuitive. How can it be blessed to be mourning, to be in sorrow, to be in pain? But this isn't talking about those who are going through a hard time or have suffered a loss. Although God's comfort is there for us when we face sorrow, Jesus is referring to more than sorrow over earthly things. It is mourning over our own sin. We are to have a deep sorrow over how we have offended and wronged God. When we do, we open ourselves up to blessing from God. In Psalm 51, we see David's heartbrokenness over his sin. He sinned greatly and he knows it. If you want to know what it means to mourn over your sin and then receive God's forgiveness and comfort, Read this psalm. And we're going to look at a few verses now from it where we see David's anguish over how he has wronged God. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This beatitude follows on from the first one. Those who are poor in spirit, who know their need of God and are humble before him, will mourn over their sin. Comfort comes from God in the forgiveness of their sin, in removing their sin and restoring them. Paul quotes in Romans 4, 7 to 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We're not just to mourn over our own sin, although that's important, but also over the sinful state of others. We're to have the heart of Jesus, wanting to see others whose lives have been ruined by sin come to know the mercy and forgiveness of God. This prompts us to share the truth of God with others and see lives being changed. David knew this. Again in Psalm 51, he says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. 
Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think there's probably another one that you've probably heard quoted at times too. It's like, oh, well, they might be meek, but at least they're going to get something in the end. They might be missing out now, but they'll get something in the end. (laughs) But being meek doesn't mean being weak or lacking courage. It doesn't mean being downtrodden or even easygoing or nice. Meek's often translated as gentle, such as where Jesus says that he is gentle and humble in heart. But even the word gentle can have a negative connotation. Biblical understanding of meekness is power under control. Meek people see themselves as servants of God. It's an attitude of heart that is willing to give up all rights to God, to allow him to deal with our life as he chooses. It is allowing God to be God in our lives and in our circumstances, submitting totally to his rule. That takes incredible strength. Jesus showed this. We know he gave up his rights and position when he came to earth in obedience to the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he allowed the Father's will to rule, not his own. To understand how to be meek, we're going to have a look at Psalm 37, 1 to 11. We're going to read through this passage. We won't have a lot of time to actually talk about it, but we're going to read through it because I think it's a really important passage about being meek. As we read through it, notice the instructions we are given. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. These verses have a lot of instructions of how to be meek and I'd encourage you to study them later. Most of you have got phones or you might have notes. Make a note, Psalm 37. Have a look at it later because it's a really important passage. You probably know that one, those verses about delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. But it's a verse in a whole passage that tells you how to be meek, how to be humble, how to wait on God. Three times in that passage, it tells us not to fret, not to worry. When we worry, we're trying to work out things our own way rather than trusting God. We're told to keep away from anger and wrath, not to seek our way or our rights. We're told to be dependent on God, to wait, to trust, to delight, to be still. That is true meekness. 
And as such, we show that he, we are his followers who will inherit all he has for us. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To hunger and thirst for something means to desire it with all of our being. Hunger and thirst are basic needs that have to be fulfilled. We all know that if we've been somewhere and for some reason we haven't had food or drink of any sort, we just, we know that we really need it. I mean, you just got to be with a young child for a while and they tell you how they're desperate for a drink or desperate for something to eat. You know, they're basically going to fade away if they don't get it. But they're basic needs that we have to fulfil. You want something that will refresh you, something that will give, fill you, give you strength. In Psalm 63.10, it says, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We have been created with a desire for God that cannot be filled with anything else. We see people trying to fill it. Maybe you did before you came to Christ. They try and fill it with all manner of things. But the reality is that God has created us and he's created in us a desire for him. And it doesn't matter how hard we try to fill it with other things, it can only be filled by him. Only as we surrender ourselves to him will we be filled with the righteousness that comes from him. And it's that that truly satisfies us. It's an ongoing process. We need to continually be filled with righteousness to keep realising that we are poor in spirit, to always mourn over our sinfulness and to humble ourselves before God. Just as we need food and drink to stay alive, so we need the righteousness of God to be spiritually alive, to keep a hunger and thirst for his ways, not become complacent or stale. Think how you are when you eat some really tasty food, some really good food. You'll want it over and over again. You'll think, oh, I've got to have that. That was so good. That's how we should be with hungering and thirsting for God, wanting his righteousness. As we do, God fills us with that which we cannot get anywhere else. And we will feel empty until he does. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. As believers, we are merciful, not so we will win or deserve God's mercy, but because he's already given us his mercy, he's already poured his mercy out on us. There are many, many verses throughout the Bible that talk about God's mercy toward us, such as Titus 3.5, which tells us God saved us, not because of our righteous deeds, but because of his mercy. The Bible continually talks about God's mercy to us. We receive mercy from God even though we're undeserving. This changes our heart so that we then extend the same mercy to others, even if they are undeserving. Because we've opened our heart to God, his mercy continues to flow into our lives. True mercy is given without expecting any benefit and is often costly. It is that that was shown by Jesus when on the cross, he went to the cross for our sake. And when on the cross, he prayed for forgiveness for those who had crucified him. 
It was shown by Stephen when he was martyred. He also called out to God for forgiveness for those who were there stoning him to death. In Jesus' time, mercy wasn't held in high regard. The Romans glorified justice, courage, discipline and power, certainly not mercy, which was seen as weakness. Throughout Roman history, a basic principle was that no mercy was to be shown. In a book by historian Rodney Stark, he writes, In the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion. Because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief, it is contrary to justice. Further on, he writes, But the truly revolutionary principle was that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. Throughout Scripture, God has called his people to be merciful. Jesus' instruction was to show that we were to show mercy because it was the free gift of God. We obey Jesus by helping those in need, forgiving those who wrong us, encouraging and supporting rather than condemning those who are struggling in their faith, sharing the gospel to those who haven't heard it. Mercy is a characteristic that marks us out as Christians. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In biblical terms, the heart refers to the mind, the will, and the emotions. We are called to be pure in our whole being. Psalm 24, 3-5 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Sin destroys purity of heart. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they hid from God. They realised they could no longer be in his presence. We also see this in Luke 5, where in Jesus' instructions, the disciples throw out their nets and they catch this huge haul of fish. They've been fishing all night, caught nothing. Jesus comes along and says, well, put your nets out there. And they catch this huge haul of fish. When that happens, Peter has an understanding of how he is and who Jesus is. And in verse 8 of that chapter, it says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He realised Jesus' purity and he realised his lack of purity. And he knew he shouldn't be in the presence of such purity. Purity of heart cannot come about by our own efforts. It is only as we acknowledge our sinfulness and allow God to cleanse and change us that we can be pure in heart. It does not mean that we'll never sin again. Instead, we will seek forgiveness of our sin and desire righteousness. Again, we go back to David in Psalm 51, where in verse 10, he asked God to create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
In Matthew 23, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for their lack of purity of heart. He points out how they make efforts. They make great efforts to look good on the outside, but they aren't concerned at all with their heart, such as in verse 25 of that chapter where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but instead they are full of greed and self-indulgence. If your heart is pure, what will flow out of it will show God's love and truth. We need to make sure that we are continually coming to God for his cleansing, his purifying. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The peace that is needed is peace with God. We were created to live in relationship with him. Before sin came into the world, there was peace on earth. Adam and Eve lived in harmony with God, with themselves, with the earth. When sin came, their peace with God was destroyed, and this led to division on earth. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to restore that peace. We're told in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This beatitude tells us to actively pursue peace. As Jesus' followers, we're called to be peacemakers, to bring the peace of God into every situation we face. We're to bring peace by reconciling people to God, by sharing with them the truth of the gospel. We can only do that if we are living in the truth of the peace that God has given us, if we are letting God's peace guard our heart and mind, living in obedience to the will of God. We do this by following what it says in Romans 12, 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, as far, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The people this was written to were under harsh Roman rule. To tell them, rather than take revenge, rather than just put up with persecution, they were to do good to their enemies was radical. There's an old saying, it's very, very old, it's not clear where it originated. There's lots of different people attributing it to different sources. But it says, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. The re reality is that in attempting to take revenge, you not only destroy your enemy, you destroy yourself. Only God can avenge justly. How often do we destroy peace by taking offence, often at really trivial things, by seeking to make sure that we get our rights, you know, that's not fair. Like the little kid stamping his feet and going, it's not fair. You know, we try to get what we think we deserve, even at the expense of others, by not forgiving. We are called to bring peace into our world by following the example of Jesus. Matthew 5.10 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is expanded in the next two verses, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Jesus makes it clear that following him is costly. A comfortable, convenient life isn't what Jesus is giving. There will be times we will face persecution because of our faith. While we're fairly immune from much persecution here, we know that's not the case in other parts of the world. Where living for Jesus may mean facing physical harm, financial penalties, isolation from local society, even imprisonment or death. I wonder if Jesus basically repeats this beatitude in the next couple of verses because it's the one we most don't want to hear. We don't like the idea of being persecuted. We want to be liked, to be well thought of, to be comfortable and content. Yet we also see in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There are times when we will suffer in some way because of following Jesus, and we shouldn't be surprised by this. We need to make sure, though, it is because we're living for Christ, than because we're doing what he's told us to do. We're standing up for righteousness. Righteousness challenges people because it exposes sin and also exposes people's helplessness to deal with their sin. We have to be careful that we are not being persecuted because we're doing the wrong thing or being difficult or trying to make a point. As one writer puts it clearly, this blessing is not given to those who are persecuted for stupidity, laziness or simply being obnoxious. We need to examine our life and see if we're following Jesus. We shouldn't be upset or surprised by being persecuted but rather keep our eyes fixed on him, knowing God is with us throughout it all. These Beatitudes challenge us just as Jesus intended when he taught them. It's simpler to have a set of rules to adhere to, particularly when you can often bend or push or qualify a rule. You can find the qualifying circumstances that rule doesn't actually apply to you or whatever. It's much harder to continually examine ourselves, to see if our thoughts, our motives, our attitudes are godly, to give up greed, pride, selfishness, anger, self-sufficiency, to humble, to be humble and dependent, to be repentant. That's only done as we submit ourselves to God and let his life flow into us. For the people at the time, this was radical. This was calling them to a far greater, a far deeper way of living than they were used to. And it's true for us too. Our theme for this year is discipleship. And these Beatitudes show us how a disciple of Jesus is to live. Not just looking good, looking holy on the outside, but having a heart that shows the life of Jesus in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your teaching, Lord God. We thank you that you do turn things upside down, Lord. That you make things much more meaningful, Lord. That you call us not just to do this, do that, 
but to live in relationship with you, to let the life of Christ flow within us, let the Holy Spirit work within us, Lord, to challenge us, to show us where we fall short, Lord God, to show us what needs to change, to show us how we are to act because it comes from a heart that is right with you, Lord. And Lord, we thank you that you're with us, that you gave us your Holy Spirit to live within us, to teach us your words, Lord God, to show us your way. And I pray for each of us that we will examine ourselves, Lord, that we will let the Holy Spirit show us what needs to change, where we fall short, Lord God, and show us how to live as you desire, to be a true disciple, Lord, of yours. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.